HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I am joined by Josh Evans, one of the many authors of the On Eating Insects cookbook. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks very much. Before we get into the book, I want to get into a little bit of your history. You went to Yale. That's correct, for my undergrad, yeah. Uh, and you studied what over there? I was a humanities major, technically, um, which was very satisfyingly broad. Uh, most of the coursework I did was in literature and philosophy and extremely impractical things like that, which nonetheless I find that I use actually all the time. How does it apply or how did it get you to uh, the Sustainable Food Club? At Yale. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, ended up being my student job for sort of mo- th- yeah three, three, three of the four years that I was there. Um, I, one of the reasons I, want, I chose to go to Yale um, was because of the Sustainable Food Project. Because in high school, I was becoming more and more interested in food and cooking and food systems and how sort of... I had a lot of interests, and I still do. And food was a way that I could try and integrate them and bring them together because food seems to me to be something that demands sort of pulling together all of these diverse perspectives. Well, and so when I, when I went to Yale, that was really like a, a sort of something I sought out a community to try and get involved with. What was one of the earlier revelations when you were still in high school about how food affected the world? Even if it's a broad realization, mm-hmm. what is one of the things that you saw where it took you on this path to this is more than just what I eat every day? Yeah. I think... It started probably really young. I mean, I grew up on the west coast of Canada um, on a big island called Vancouver Island and right on the ocean. So I spent a lot of time. My father would fish a lot and he would take me out fishing. And from a young age, I can remember landing like salmon that were larger than me and watching him, you know, hit them on the head once very, very concisely, but very deliberately to kill them and watching them die and, you know, other things like very sort of sensory experiences of like being cut by thorns of blackberries while picking them and sort of, and my father keeping vegetables in the garden. And at that time I didn't think of it as anything special, but now I see that those sort of experiences were very formative, not just in terms of loving to eat and growing up with that sense of attunement to the world, but also how they, they led into, they sort of set the stage for discovering later on how these very immediate kinds of experiences were directly implicated in like these larger systemic questions about how we produce food and how we share it with each other or fail to share it with each other in equitable ways, et cetera. And so what type of work did the Yale uh, Sustainable Food Project do that helped impact these or help maintain these or bring education to the student body and larger world around it? Um, I think a big part of it was having a physical space, having land, having like, I mean, it's a a small garden, really, it's less than an acre, but having a space where every week anyone in the Yale community or in the New Haven community could come and put their hands into the soil and grow things and learn by doing things. And especially in that academic environment where most of the time you spend reading and writing and thinking and discussing and existing in your head so much, which was also very satisfying. It was really, it became a really crucial part of my academic experience to have this regular time to be in my whole body and like use my hands and get dirty, literally, um, and learn about food and agriculture in that very immediate sort of way, uh, in a very kind of basic way, starting with the the physical, the physical acts of, of making things. Um, and then building on that. Did you introduce any 
new species or any new vegetables or any new plants to the garden in your time there that you're super proud of? Me personally? Yes, you personally. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I, th- I mean, the, the garden was, the farm was, m- did produce a lot for a, a plot less than an acre. And where did it go? And a lot of it went to the weekly farmer's market, mm. and some of it would be used for special events on the farm, too. Um, but I, even though it was quite small, there was a really big range of, 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 of plants and varieties that we grew. Uh, what do you miss? What do I miss? Like, is there a potato that you grew? There, so they have a variety of tomato called the Sun Gold, mm. um, which it has, they've been growing since the beginning in, like, 2003. And their particular Sun... I've tried them other places, but, like, something about the Yale Farm Sun Gold is, like, particularly uh, excellent. Do you still have the key to the lock and you'll sneak in there overnight? That's the plan, yeah, whenever I can, you know. Speaking as a philosophy major, mm. did you ever read to any of the plants? And if so, who did you read to them? Oh, what a great question. Um, it, yeah, it really depended on the season, I think. Uh, I'm trying to... I did, I did. I, I don't know. I would say I probably recited more to them. What did you recite to them? Um, T.S. Eliot, especially in the fall. Very you good. know, yeah. But, I mean, as an undergraduate, so that's an obvious choice. But, but hopefully fine. you'll forgive me. No, it's forgiven. <laughs> I think currently I'm reading Seabald's Rings of Saturn. Mm. So... Um, and I going back up to New Haven on Monday, so I think now that you mention it, now that you draw it to my attention again, I think I might try and read that to whatever's growing. Just, the asparagus ha- had its first sprouts coming up yesterday, so I think the asparagus might like some Seabold. Just an early spring reading. Yeah. And from there, you made it over to the Nordic Food Lab. Correct. correct? Um, which was started by Renee, founder of Noma. Yeah. Can you talk about the Food Lab for those who aren't, who aren't known? started in 2008. Yeah, sure. So... Um, the food, Nordic Food Lab is a nonprofit that was set up by Renee and Klaus Meyer, the, also the sort of one of the other founder of Noma, um, as a space where chefs and also different academic researchers and food producers could come together to sort of together identify questions uh, that would allow them to explore the edible potential of the Nordic region. And the focus was always really on taste and sort of mapping out the diversity of tastes that were available and figuring out how to use them in the kitchen. Um, and from the beginning, the idea that it would be, the idea was that it would be about creating this knowledge and then sharing it in a very open way across these different um, sort of industries and cultures. Um, and, uh, yeah. And it has yeah. a commons law, which is pretty interesting. Right on the website that like pretty much everything is open and free. And yeah. it's very interesting to see a food lab use phrases like open source. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was really a hope that was instilled in the place from the beginning. I think Renee... A lot of the questions that he was encountering, at least as, as far as he's told me, um, w- a lot of similar research they were doing in the early days of the restaurant um, and realizing that, you know, the sort of immense range of varieties of wild plants and shellfish that are not even known about, let alone used in kitchens, was just so vast. And a lot of that knowledge used to be known, but has been forgotten. Other things like using seaweeds, for example, is very rich traditions in other parts of the world, but for whatever set of reasons in the Nordic region, hasn't maybe existed so much. So there was a sense that there was all of this knowledge out there, very physically manifested knowledge, that need that should be investigated for the purpose of like expanding the flavors that are available. And that it wasn't enough to just sort of keep that proprietary, just so no one could use it, but that the best benefit would come by just putting it out into the world and seeing how it would be used and remixed in different ways. Yeah, it's really interesting that... Um the balance and the creative constraint of it where it's global technique but local local ingredients mm-hmm. which means that you can apply 
the education anywhere because you can take any of the global techniques but then apply it to your local regional uh, ingredients, which I think is such a smart way that it can actually be exported as opposed to, well, this is what we do with you know Norwegian cuisine mm. as opposed mm. to you can now do this with Finnish cuisine or Mexican cuisine or Japanese cuisine. Absolutely, and I think... That's really that's really on point. Um, most of the thing, most of the techniques, especially like when it comes to fermentation, for example, if you look at the Nordic Food Lab blog where we post a lot of the research, most of those techniques are not endemic to the Nordic region. They're from elsewhere. And what becomes interesting is seeing what happens when we do a kind of process of culinary translation, where we say, okay, how can we take this text, if you will, this script, and translate it into the sort of culinary lexicon of this region and what happens to the flavors, what happens to the processes, what kind of new um, sensory experiences and culinary uh, products can arise from that marriage of like this really, really ancient set of knowledge with a a sort of ecological context that it hadn't been exposed to until this point. When did insects get introduced to the food lab? As far as I know and have been told, it was slightly before my time. Um, probably started at the first MAD Symposium in the summer of 2011. Um, Alex Atala, this chef from Brazil, brought this um, this ant from the Amazon to share with everyone. He was giving a talk on relationships between plants and insects. And apparently it tasted very much of lemongrass or ginger or different things, depending on whom you ask. And Rene tasted it and he was totally blown away and he asked a question to Nordic Food Lab, which was, why can't I serve insects on my menu? Uh, for which he hired, uh, he brought on Mark Emil Hermanson, a, a Dane who had studied anthropology, um, to sort of start to investigate w- the background to some of this question. Because it wasn't just a culinary question, right? It was also an historical one, an anthropological one, a cultural one. And so from there, I think the lab started to dabble in insects and to sort of say, okay, what species do we have around here that we might start to use? Um, we started, they started working with some local ants and some bee larvae. And then when I came on in June of 2012, shortly after graduating, um, the lab was just starting to put together a larger application for a grant mm. to get funding to do like a proper three-year research project, really going into it deeply. And one of the first things I started to do when I came was to help put together this grant application. Were there any initial Western hang-ups of people eating inse- insects or because it was the Nordic Food Lab, everything was game and people were used to yeah. introducing new types of ingredients or uh, unknown sources of protein or things to eat? I think probably both. Probably a bit of both. Um, uh, I mean, as our our job was to, to taste everything. Uh, and so from, from starting from that point, because that was kind of the microculture of the, of the of Nordic Food Lab... Um, we were always aware that that was part of our mandate in mm. some ways. Some people who came, like especially some sort of short-term collaborators, sometimes it would take some people a little, a little bit of time to warm up to the idea and to like get over this, this very. Even though we were all a lot of us around were eating them very easily, sometimes people who came in took a bit of time to get used to it. But yeah. Post Grant, do you remember the first insect or dish that hit the Noma standard or something that? You felt, oh, this can actually be served and not just a mm. uh, gimmick, but mm-hmm. it actually is a really good dish. It just so happens that insects are the mm-hmm. main ingredient. Mm-hmm. Well, so I should start by saying that um, all of the the dish, all of the techniques and the products that we sort of were working on at Nordic Food Lab were not necessarily 
for Noma to take and put on their menu. They also, I mean, they have their own test kitchen where they develop dishes for themselves. That being said, we were definitely in constant dialogue. Um, probably one of the first really successful things that came out of the lab with insects were, uh, were, was grasshopper garum, which is sort of this fermented umami sauce modeled partly after ancient Roman fish sauce, which is where the name garum comes from, and sort of also partly uh, off of Southeast Asian fish sauces. And the idea was that you take something proteinous, add some salt and some fermented uh, grain and let it break down and it becomes really, really savory. And instead of using fish guts, we would use grasshoppers or anything really, any sort, any sort of proteinous thing. And since then, we've also used like many other species of insect and they all sort of have slightly distinct nuances from each other. Um, and, but the first time that Nordic Food Lab did sort of really made a menu where we were developing full, fully conceived dishes with, with insects in sort of a, a gastronomic way was for an event that we did at the Welcome Collection in London in uh, spring of 2013. And that was sort of a, uh, it was called Pestival. It was, a, it was part of a festival that was about sort of human insect relations in art and science. And so we were giving this lecture, and we developed a menu of, I think, six dishes and three beverages that sort of illustrated different approaches that we can take to using insects in a way, as you say, in a way that's not about novelty, it's not about gimmick value or shock value, it's really about trying to explore their huge range of tastes and textures um, in, a, in, a sort of, in a sort of serious way, I guess. We're going to take a quick musical break, and then we're going to be right back to talk to Josh Evans about the book on eating insects. You're listening to Snacky Tunes. It's a ride, and it's 
hard to our lives Or we will be return to the ocean No one ever thought it was wrong Before On Eating Insects came out, what was the literature on eating insects that was available in the world? There is very little, I think. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why sort of the main motivation that we had for doing a project was really focused on the taste. Because at that point, sort of 2012, 2013, the conversation around edible insects in the world was becoming was rapidly becoming quite big. The FAO published this, um, sorry, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Um, they published this sort of landmark book uh, on edible insects that was the most downloaded book by orders of magnitude in its entire history. So there was definitely a lot of interest, but there's really little work and sort of focus on what they actually tasted like. And rather than being an afterthought, it really seems to us that if there's so much interest in getting more people to eat them and in sort of valorizing them as traditional foods then we really have to know how to turn them into food for people who don't have them as a tradition. And so focusing on the taste and focusing on the culinary preparation was like, rather than being a trivial thing, a really crucial part of the sort of larger argument. Um, so, and what little there was, I don't even know if there w was very much, was mostly in like an academic kind of place. Um, and so we really saw a, a, a need and an opportunity to... Uh, start doing research both in the lab and doing a lot of field work and sharing these stories about the kind, the sort of the range, the diversity of flavors that were there and also some ways that we could make them appropriate to sort of Western cultures. 
Right, and I think that's a good point. It's not like bugs were just discovered in 2010. They've been a huge part of other uh, different cultures' diets for millennia. So how did you balance the approach of you know the West not just being like, look what we found, and folding in the history, the shared history of other cultures? Absolutely. That was a huge focus of it, and a really important point for me for the, for the research throughout, is that in many ways, Western cultures are the exception to the rule. For whatever set of reasons, um, they aren't very prominent here, whereas for many more cultures in the world, they are not just eaten, but are really delicacies. Um, Foods that maybe have short seasons, but seasons that are looked forward to very much and aren't just eaten because people, you know, there's a common conception that like, oh yeah, of course, all of the poor tropical people eat insects because they're starving. It's like, couldn't be farther from the truth, actually. What's a good example of of a dish that's a delicacy in a short growing season? Um, well, let's see, like a lot of the, uh, like termites, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, there's loads of different species and different ways of preparing them. Um, and they, like many insects in tropical and subtropical regions are associated with the rainy season. So the onset of the rains is sort of the time when a lot of insects come. Um, and the, a lot of people across this region eat different kinds of termites and uh they they're there's something that they really look forward to i mean when we were, we were doing field work in kenya and uganda and we would ask people that we were talking with or meeting around for different purposes you know, if you could have a kilogram of beef or goat or termites which would you have and most people would say oh definitely take the termites yeah so tasty what was the bug uh and what country that you found that was your favorite mm. This is a very hard question. It's a very common question. Um, <laughs> and I always find myself giving different answers depending on my mood and what stories I remember. I think there's, there's a few. Talking about termites, I mean, the termite queen is uh, an exceptional food. Just, what's, what's the taste? She's, she's, firstly, we should say, she's much, much larger than any termite. She's about, I mean, maybe her abdomen alone is like eight centimeters. Um, and it's this fat, plump, like liquidy... Uh, uh, in the film that we made, Ben, my, my former colleague, describes it as God's handmade sausage, which I think is a pretty apt description. And it has this amazing sort of nutty aroma And while it's cooking, and it sort of firms up when you cook it on, on like a pan on the fire. And then the texture is really like soft and spongy, sort of like sweetbreads. And it has this sort of sweetbread, somewhat foie gras, sort of nutty organ meat kind of deliciousness sounds incredible it is there's nothing like like nothing i've ever tasted that sounds uh, amazing so before we get into the recipes in the book i think what's really interesting is the essays that you have in here about the political implications the geographical implications um sustainability implications how did you approach that and who did you approach to write the essays because it's not just you that wrote the book there's there's many authors uh, who share the title yes um so when we started the project I think, and probably the reason we got the funding in the first place is because we were drawing on and reproducing essentially the same kind of story that was being told at the time. Like, there's a huge food crisis, it's primarily about food production, and insects are poised to, like, save this and be this kind of silver bullet. And then over the course of doing the project, doing the fieldwork, reading into it more, developing more critical questions it became clear that things were a lot more complicated than that. And that sort of is where a lot of these essays emerged from. Um, and I um, think at least a few of the essays in the book are kind of 
condensed and revised from a couple academic papers that we wrote about some of these political sustainability um, questions around how unpredictable food systems are and how, in many cases, it's a lot more about sort of power and access and inequality than it is about how much food we produce as like a crude commodity. Can you talk about the power aspect of it? Yeah, so... um, I mean, often when we talk about this, I think it's really useful to look at historical precedents for similar kinds of things. So if we look at soybeans, for example, um, it, earlier in the 20th century, in like the 30s, 40s, and 50s, a lot of people were identifying soybeans as this thing that was just going to solve everything and alleviate, totally eliminate hunger as this like cheap, plant-based protein-rich thing that had this huge body of traditional knowledge associated with it, a lot of genetic diversity, a lot of um, sort of existing culinary applications, and that if everyone just ate more soy, that it would kind of fix everything. But of course, that's not how things have panned out at all. Uh, And what's much more the case is that vast monocultures of GM um, soy that's owned privately, the this, this sort of seeds and genome of which are owned privately are being planted in the Amazon and leading to the deforestation of the of the continent, and so and then being shipped as a commodity to North America and Europe so that we can raise cheap cheap cattle and continue to eat beef in a very uh, bad way. So, do you think we'll see GMO crickets or caterpillars sometime down the line? It's possible. Um, Definite, and that was something that emerged from like going to some of these really big international conferences around eating insects. That you had people who were doing fa- fascinating, fantastic work on like ethnobiology and working with like trying to document this huge range of knowledge associated with these ecologies. But then you also had like the cargos and the Nestles, uh, who were sort of figuring out how they could turn this into money. Uh, and that that wasn't just something that we were like speculating on. That was something that like we <laughs> explicitly encountered mm. from people. And so that you know that's why it's. I think it's too simplistic to say insects are good or insects are bad. Like many things, it's actually a lot less about the organism itself, and it's a lot more about the the systems that humans build around them that determines what kind of um, positive or sustainable impact they have. The book is stunning. The photos are incredible. I think that if you were to get a book on eating insects, you could think that there might be some uh, close-ups of some larvae or some close-up of just some things. And the, the photos just look like any high-end, beautiful book. So what was the approach to the recipes and how uh, how easy is it for someone at home, a home cook, to make some of these dishes? Yeah, I think you, you're really right to pick up on this kind of visual aspect of the book. Um, and we at Nordic Food Lab and also the folks at Fiden, we were really on the same page about this from the beginning, that... Um, we didn't want to make a book that was like, oh, like, let's, you know, make a pizza and throw some mealworms on it and, like, call it a day. It's like, that's not sort of what we're about, both from the gastronomic angle and also from from the visual angle of having, I mean, especially Fiden is so, they have so much focus on, like, really investing in the, the visual aspect of their books, which was really great. Um, and also from our point of view, I mean, some sometimes it would make sense to, uh, you know, change the form of the insect so that we can introduce people to the taste without necessarily forcing them to confront that kind of psychological barrier of saying, I'm eating a whole larva. But then other times, there are other dishes in the book where we're really celebrating the whole form of that insect. And maybe those are sort of a bit more advanced in some way for eaters, where they're for people who already are developing this relationship with them as foods and can say, okay, I'm ready to kind of encounter it as a food. I'm ready to have that, you know, that that fish head or that um, 
that, uh, that thing that reminds me of the whole animal. Um, and I think both approaches, having this range of approaches is really important when we're, when we're sort of introducing new foods. You also talk about cultivating your own insects. So for uh, early beginner, uh, first time out insect eater, how do you recommend people getting the insects to start eating or testing or cooking with? I think um, it's in, in a lot of ways, it's like kind of the same story that we might want to talk about for any kind of food, whether it's vegetables or meat or, or, or anything. It's like start local, like start with what's around you. Um, of course, for many of us, it's, there aren't like existing insect industries, which is why I think one place I really like to, to start with are, are with bee larvae and with like, some, that's often a byproduct that you can find from local beekeepers, um, because many beekeepers, more and more, are practicing this pro- this, uh, this this sort of technique of removing some bee larvae as a way of reducing this varroa mite, this parasite in the hive. And then they have it as a byproduct, and often they'll just throw it away. And instead, you can sort of use it and start experimenting with it. I wonder if you can go to your local pet store and just get crickets like you would feed to your animals as well. Mm, yeah, and that's something that we started out with, uh, especially in the beginning of the project, um, where we would we would get insects to work with that were you know f- of food grade quality but they were produced primarily for, with the intention of um being bought by like pet keepers with, who had reptiles for example who like needed to serve them live prey um but we ended up finding some producers in germany and the netherlands and things that really were producing some you know they were producing edible things um feeding them like actual plant matter and they they were we could work with them yeah i would be remiss to not ask was there any bug or dish that just no matter how hard you try just couldn't get past the point of i'm eating bugs and this is not working <laughs> yes definitely uh well there are two sort of angles to this one is like on field work when we would you know not everything we tasted on field work was like amazingly not revelatory was, not everything was god sausage no not everything was god sausage um uh, so there's that angle, and that's that's fine. I mean, also that's very cultural too. I mean, a lot of like cheese for many people is also totally disgusting. It's basically like rotten milk. I, I totally get that. And then when we were in the lab, yeah, I mean, even what was interesting also is like even within the same species, we ended up tasting quite a range of things uh, within the same species, like depending on how they were fed and reared. So like getting crickets that were actually quite tasty versus getting crickets that tasted like fish meal because they had been fed fish meal, mm. you know? Like, that's kind of a no-brainer, but it should be said that that's, that's very much a thing, like with any kind of animal. Um, it, there's, there's a range of flavors that have to do with, like, how humans are intervening in their livelihood and in their life cycle. Um, also processing, like, a lot of insects nowadays are, like, freeze-dried to, for to be um, given, like, somewhat stable shelf life and to be able to be shipped a lot, a lot around the world. But a lot of insects have, are very fatty. They have a lot of unsaturated fats, especially, and those fats go rancid really quickly. And then they ended up tasting sort of like rancid cardboard. And like, that's not very tasty, you know? And that's sort of a similar logic in many ways to mm, growing a tomato that's bred to like be really hard and shippable rather than a tomato that isn't going to make it very far, but it's going to be really, really delicious and really, really nourishing for you. And I think the same holds true for anything, really. You're thinking about the sun golds. I'm thinking about the sun golds, and I want, you know, whether it's an insect or a tomato or a vegetable or 
any kind of food, I think that is what excites me about eating. And that kind of, that pursuit of that experience, I think also has a really transformative potential for food systems, that the more that we can focus on and attend to the potential of giving that sun gold kind of experience to more people, the better our food systems will look like, the better they'll be. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for coming on to Snacky Tunes. Uh, where can people get the book, find your work, follow you on Twitter? Yeah, um, I think the book the book is coming out May 1st, which is very exciting. It should be available, uh, as they say, anywhere where books are sold. I don't know. <laughs> it should be, uh, uh, and also online, of course. Um, and yeah, I'm on Twitter, Josh D. Evans, I believe. Great. We're going to take another quick musical break, and we will be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes.
This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Welcome back. We're live here on Snacky Tunes with Hey Baby. Welcome to the show. Good to see the three of you. Thank you. Hi. Do you want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Leslie. Hello. Hello. Nice to see all of you. Um, you guys f- started playing together as a band in 2011, but didn't put out the first full length until 2015. You talked a bit having to find the right sound and formation. What kind of led to that, and, and when did you feel you were ready to write that first record? Um, well, I don't know. We All of us came from listening to and playing very different kinds of music, so I feel like we spent a long time... Finding a middle ground. Yeah, and finding out how all that interlocked you know, into something coherent. What were some, um, What's a good example of two bands that were on the opposite ends of the spectrum that you had to kind of work towards as reference points? Well, for example, I enjoy uh, sad guy guitar music, you know, <laughs> which Leslie doesn't really. I, it's, yeah. And Boo-hoo. Jeremy enjoys very, very angry music. Yeah, I like metal. <laughs> yeah. Metal. What's a good example of sad guy guitar music? You know, like Nick Drake. Okay, yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> Stephen Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... And Leslie, what were you? What are you into? Or where? One hundred percent craft work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so craft work, Nick Drake, <laughs> and metal all right. had to find. You roll that. Run. You roll that all together. <laughs> you get our band. How do, uh, how do you begin on that process? I mean, I. I mean, I think the best thing about bands is that it's a generally group of people with totally different backgrounds all coming to, together to make something that they wouldn't do on their own. So, where did you find compromise, overlap, and? What were some things that were non-negotiable? Well, I don't think we went into this band with the idea that we were going to craft a specific sound. Um, And all of, like, 90% of our songs are born from just jamming together. So in doing that, you kind of, like, dance around what the core of the song is, and then you get to it together. And when you do, it's pretty good. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, but the, the reason it took so long, I think I hadn't even thought of a band as like a recorded product uh, for years. Like, like we were just like having so much fun playing live and trying to like craft our live shows into like, like I remember, God, a first show at Don Pedro or something. <laughs> it was like, why did that sound so bad? So like we were trying to figure out how to make it sound good when you're playing in front of people and then few years got away yeah i mean i i that's a good point actually and and for us you know we hadn't really been or i at least hadn't really been in a band that sounded good live before 
And so that was also exciting to explore that and realize you could have, you know, and and then when you when you first play the, the first when you when you play a, a good live show, I feel like it's this kind of ecstatic experience, you know, where you have like this you know this communion between yourself and the audience, and that's a special experience that doesn't exist in a recording really or in any other context. Um, right, the energy is just almost um, it's just so engaging. Yeah. It's almost like a drug yeah. in a way. So it's hard to take a break from that and then be like, now we're going to go away and sit in the studio and make a record. Yeah, and yeah. I do think it took us a while to, to really um, uh, 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 find to, uh, hone in on that. And did the sound evolve from the early shows and to what ended up on uh, the on Sleepy Kids? Well, I feel like these two have a much different musical experience than me because mm-hmm. I kind of joined late in the game. I had already played with a few other bands like mm-hmm. Airwaves and Motel Hotel and kind of had done the whole touring and musician. But also, like a third of that album was written before Jeremy was in the band. Yeah. So we finished it with him. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, all those songs developed out of... Well, not all of them, actually. Uh, a lot of those songs developed out of, you know years of playing live and then a few of them were um we wrote closer to the to when we recorded it right yeah can we hear a song sure yeah what are you gonna play for us first uh this is a song called home off our uh upcoming full length yet to be titled uncertain title uncertain title which is not the title it's just uncertain title well we're not ruling that out either okay Should we, t- should we tell you what we're thinking about? Sure. Or play the song and we can talk yeah. about it afterwards. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Hey, baby, live on Snacky Tunes. One, two, three, four. There's no going home. You
when you put out the Blood Honest EP uh, last spring, you talked about the songwriting and the ideas about it being uh, around the concept of how difficult it was to exist as a human being. <laughs> Do you find that it's still difficult to exist as a human being May 2017, 100%. a year later? Always. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the daily difficulties uh, of being blood and flesh? Uh, drinking water. Well, first of all, you have to keep your body literally alive, That's which is a total hassle. And then being aware of any single thing that's happening in the world is, you know, 90% of the time a bummer. Um, What's the 10% of the time when it's not a bummer? You're playing music on stage. No, yeah, sometimes there's, no, there's, there's good news. Of, yeah, and there's definitely times where you're like, oh, man, today's going to be a great day. And you go outside. And sure, it's yeah. beautiful out. And birds are chirping. And then you step in a big puddle or someone honks <laughs> at you and tells you to walk faster, you jerk. But in much more coarse language. I mean, obviously, like, this is a particularly galling time to read the news, you know. But I guess it's always a galling time to read the news, you know. Th- this one feels particularly heavy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I really like the point where you you lay down or sit down mm-hmm. after being not sitting down all day. That's the ten percent that's pretty good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that and um, while you're eating, but not right after you've eaten. I don't know chewing. <laughs> really, is that one? Of the, I mean, that's a big hassle that you have to do with every yeah. day. Oh chewing. my god. <laughs> Would you rather just go after something like a soylent? Just like drink your. Drinking nutrients? I don't know. I just wish my teeth were like better, like pointier I'd, or something. <laughs> that, that would make it harder to chew, I feel, if all your teeth were really pointy. I don't know. You know, you need, you need good grinders. I mean, I enjoy the flavors of food, but it's mostly just like my dad was like, you gotta chew 40 times before you swallow. <laughs> oh, I think that's probably, I think we just got to the root of the problem. It's, it's yeah. less about chewing and more the fact that you have a number of 40 in your head every time. But yeah. every time I took a bite, I had to think, 40 times for every bite I would hate chewing as well I don't think I'm that quite that obsessive compulsive but it is something that I think about we'll teach you some tricks after the show how to chew your food in like okay. half the time right. cool thanks yeah we're in a restaurant we'll just go around the room yeah. and get some tips from the audience out yeah, there you look like you're good at eating yeah you look like you're good but you do don't do that much chewing what's right. your secret yeah. slurp yeah <laughs> oh could you I don't know if there's any pizza slurpers out here but if there was one we could probably find them yeah, do you guys cook for each other, or do you make food for each other? Any communal? Uh, Leslie d- kind of cooks for us sometimes. Yeah, well, she does a great job too. Yeah, what do you Thank what you. do you normally cook? Um, normally, well, I'm Korean, so my hand in the kitchen leans Korean. Okay. I make a lot of noodle soups, soft tofu stews. Last, I've been working on this shrimp dish that I hope to have at my our future imaginary restaurant. Oh wait, you guys gonna open a restaurant? That's that's the dream. Is it, is it gonna be Korean food? Uh, probably like a mixed bag. I'm thinking like bowls, like customizable, mostly vegetarian bowls with like add some meat protein options, sandwiches, rotating specials, stuff. Yeah. I'm into this. I mean, I know you haven't named the album yet, but does the restaurant have a name? No. No. It's still very, still, still pretty imaginary. Still very far from the yeah. future. I've always wanted to name a restaurant Scallion, but I think it's as equally stupid as it is bougie. <laughs> Scallion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you'd have to really, you know, everything else would have to be just right for you to get away with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Can we hear another song? Sure. sure. What are you going to play for us? 
This is another one off the next unnamed album. Uh, it's called Animosity. in the room that new record let's talk about it so no title possible title we've had a couple ideas okay you, let's let's put them all out here so when it comes out we can use it as a reference point what, uh-huh. what it could right. have been 
Well, the first thought that we had was uh, to call it I Am Not Stopped, uh, which is a quote from, I think, Bill from, Cosby's from Bill Cosby, confession. Yeah. When he he uh, gave a deposition back in the day, and he described... Um, uh, molesting someone, basically. Like a sleeping person. Yeah. That he And drugged. so he's telling the story in, you know, first person, present. He's saying, you know, I do this, I do that, you know. Uh, uh, I reach over, you know, I touch her, I am not stopped, you know. And it's a just a chilling <laughs> thing to, re- to, to read him saying and just seems very emblematic of that. The, the difficulty of being of a human yeah. of 2017. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm not stopped. That's good. What's up? What's another one? You can talk about it. Oh, well, another one was um, they get there, which is uh, one of our very first internets was uh, this some Portuguese blog uh, wrote about us in Portuguese, and none of us speak Portuguese, so we Google translated it, and um, the sort of the title of the of the piece was they get there. That's so good. Right? That's really good. That's actually, um, I'm going to just put my hat towards the other one. Well, that's darker, but still very funny. And it's also, it's coming out on Tiny Engines, correct? Yeah, that's that's the plan. Which is your your home for the last uh, couple projects? Yeah. Yeah, they've been great. Rad, rad people? Absolutely. Yeah, super supportive. Yeah. They're just like two dudes who love music and have been doing it mm-hmm. like hard and well yeah. for years, <laughs> just the two of them for a while, I guess. I mean, maybe there are more people involved, but we don't talk to anybody else. Uh, well, they have, they've got some interns. <laughs> yeah. Just a couple of interns yeah. rotating. Yeah. I mean, it's always good to find a home that, that gets you, and also your label mates, your, the, the bands that are all, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that you keep in good company. Oh, yeah. good yeah. company. In it's fact- been, yeah, we've, we've met so many, like, beautiful people mm-hmm. like other, you know, everyone else on the label is like pretty much sweethearts and like for some reason we just keep like a national tour community going with them so it's pretty sweet and you have some upcoming shows with them right yeah exactly yeah one of our label mates see-through dresses is coming through from omaha on june 24th and we'll be playing with them and, and then there's another one too right sunnyvale um uh no, that one's please? actually that. So the, that's there's, so June twenty fourth. We're playing with see through dresses at, at Barranquilla, yeah. which is like a DIY house show spot, like and, deep into Bushwick. And then on um, July fifteenth, we're playing another show. But that actually, I think the the venue is still TBD. TB, yeah. T- yeah, it might T- be at our house. Might be. At, <laughs> yeah. it'll be somewhere. Yeah. Do you do house shows? We do sometimes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's called the Hey Baby Cat Farm. <laughs> How many cats are there? Well, it's, it, they're actually dwindling. Yeah. Uh, not for any macabre reason. <laughs> sure. Uh, we haven't been harvesting them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, but there were three at, at, at maximum cat. Yeah. And now, cat, wait, max, maximum capacity? Cat capacity? Oh, yeah. Yes, capacity. that's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> that's correct. Um, yeah, but I'm moving to Richmond and taking two of them with me. Got it. Yeah. Okay. We want to make sure we have time for one more song, but where can people find you, hear the old records, get the new title at release, get the new record? Uh, uh, Spotify? You can just Google Hey Baby, I think. H-A-Y-B-A-B-Y. All one word. All one word. 
Uh, cool. Well, we want to thank jo- Josh Evans uh, for coming on earlier to talk about Uneating Insects, which is out now on Fade and Books. Make sure to grab it at their website or over at Amazon or wherever you get books. Hey, baby, thanks for joining us. We will be back next week with an all-new episode of Snacky Tunes. What is the name of the last song you're going to play for us? Get Down. Oh, perfect. Well, let's get there. <laughs> thanks for coming on. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Talk about food, we talk about me.
listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.